Till I'm Tiptoed you. Dot com. The podcast about pop culture, black history, and spirituality. Yeah. It's about to be a great vibe. Dr. Tip. Gonna take it away. Till I'm Tiptoed you. Thank you for joining me for another edition of Tell Em Tip Told You. I'm excited to speak with you today. Um, a couple of things I want to cover today. I want to talk about the idea of sponsored mobility and tokenism. Um, I want to hit a little bit on Mary Mary and black evangelicals and why they can be dangerous. Um, I want to go back to something I hit on probably every episode, which is the power of creating our own narratives. Um, and then I want to talk about how I'm just scared for our people right now because of some things we're doing ourselves. So let's just jump right into the idea of sponsored mobility. So the idea of sponsored mobility is that um, there are some people of color who are able to live uh, an illusion of inclusion, not necessarily based upon their own merit, but because some white people or some white person with a whole lot of power has sponsored their upward mobility in some kind of way. Either they've acted as a gatekeeper or they've given them some kind of opportunity. I won't pretend to know why um, some white people want to sponsor some black people. I won't pretend to know that, but I can tell you that unfortunately some of these people who are beneficiaries of sponsored mobility buy into the most negative stereotypes about their own people and they begin to buy into the narrative that somehow they're different from the rest of us now i'm not naive enough to think that blackness is a cultural monolith but i do think there are elements of black culture black aesthetic um, that do unify most of us let me tell you a little bit about a young lady who I encountered, who was a beneficiary of sponsored mobility and how she played into her own tokenism because she believed the worst about black people. I had a good friend who was teaching a class in African-American history, excuse me, African-American educational history. And she asked me to come speak to the class because she had identified this one young lady of color, black sister, a sister who, um, who didn't like being black. And was very vocal about not being, um, not wanting to be around other black people, not wanting to associate with black women in particular, et cetera, et cetera. And so I went to visit the class. You know, I don't think that she knew that I was invited for the express purpose of, of dealing with her. Um, but that's what I was there for. So, you know, I gave my little spiel on black education as liberation and went through the history of black ed from my perspective as a carryover of African traditional pedagogies um, and things like that. If you want to hear more about my research in that field, make sure you hit me up at uh, thehbcuprof at gmail.com. Inside note. Um, but she, um, I asked her, and she was, again, very vocal that, no, she didn't like to associate with black women in particular because we were loud, we were ghetto, we were boisterous, we were uncouth, uncivilized, we were money hungry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything you could think about, uh, every negative stereotype you could think about with black women, she spouted it. 
And so I had I asked her, how many black women do you deal with on a, on a regular basis? And at first she pretended that there were none, right? Um, and then I looked at her. I said, how often does this class meet? The class met twice a week. And I look around the room and there are like five or six, you know, young sisters. And I said, well, you know, that's not necessarily true because there are women in here that I know you're dealing with at least twice a week. And she conceded the fact that when she thought about it, yes, you know, she, there were people who lived in her dorm who were sisters. There were sisters in, in her various classes. Um, and, and let me rewind and say we were in Atlanta. <laughs> so she, uh, she dealt with black women regularly. And I asked her, I said, well, how, because she kept throwing out Real Housewives of Atlanta as this, as what black women were. And so I asked her, how many women that you deal with regularly, how many sisters that you deal with regularly act like the women on Real Housewives of Atlanta, have the money that, that the Real Housewives of Atlanta pretend to have, pretend to have faces of makeup and ball gowns regularly. I mean, who, who are you seeing like this? And she admitted that she couldn't think of any. And I asked her, well, how many of your classmates talk like that? You know, how many of your classmates are living a life like that? And she admitted that there were none. And I asked her, so where did you buy into this idea that somehow black women are this thing when you don't even personally know any black women that act like that? Your mother wasn't like that. You're not like that. You're telling me that these people you interact with on a regular consistent basis aren't like that. Where do you get the narrative from? And she admitted that it was from TV. It's from pop culture references. See, that's why we have to be careful when we generate the narratives we generate about ourselves. Because we have to combat some of this foolishness. And this was a learned young lady, right? She's at an R1, the Ivy of the South. And she believes the worst about her own people. Because not only is pop culture and media feeding her these negative stereotypes of black women, she has white peers, white colleagues, white professors saying to her that she is different and she has bought into that myth. Let me give you my own personal testimony. I remember my, both of my parents are HBCU grads. Everybody in my family, uh, pretty much, with the exception of a few, are HBCU graduates. OK, it, it, it's no question when we go off to school where we're going. <laughs> And I remember my senior year in high school, um, I had I was taking a psychology class and, and uh, this well-meaning, I'm sure she was very well-meaning white teacher, asked me where I intended to go to school. And I told her, fam, you. And she said to me, you're way too smart to consider Florida A&M University. You need to be thinking about University of Georgia. Uh so much like she couldn't even name to me she didn't even know what my my area was my area of interest was right these there are people who buy into the narrative that white water is wetter that somehow because it's a pwi it's better than an hbc you haven't even looked at the program of study i'm interested in because if i'm going into business fam you is heads and shoulders above uga right if i'm interested in engineering Tuskegee, baby. Right? So these programs, um, they don't get the recognition because some of these white teachers, well-meaning white teachers and white counselors, just assume that what we get at HBCUs is substandard. Now, if I had not been raised by a family 
that was steeped in HBCU tradition, if I had not known firsthand what HBCUs could produce, I might have believed that, oh, I'm too smart to waste my time at an HBCU. Right? I might have bought that foolishness. And unfortunately, I think there are too many of our people that buy into that narrative that HBCUs are somehow less than. And then I saw this ignorant article this week. I can't even remember the name of it. I'm glad I can't because I don't want to, I don't want you to Google it and give it clicks. But some young, naive sister was saying her PWI, she had an HBCU experience at a PWI. That's some bullshiggity. Baby, going to, having black friends at a PWI does not equal HBCU experience. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to hit up the HBCU thing a little bit later in this episode. But I wanted to start on the issue of sponsored mobility and tokenism. Um, there, and there are a lot of us who get very sensitive when we get called out on that. And I think part of it is um, if you begin to believe that you are somehow culturally superior to other black people, then you are able to insulate yourself in a kind of way against the hurt of oppression and marginalization, right? Because you can pretend that you don't experience it. White people want you to pretend that you don't experience it, right? Especially if you're middle class. God forbid you're rich because that's part of the the lash that's going out now against the athletes who are standing up. There are white people saying you make too much money to care about these things. Right. Because they want you to privilege class about above all else. Bump what's happening to your brothers and sisters in the street. You got a, you know, you got a, uh, a Bentley. Don't believe the hype. Right. Because Kanye said, well, Kanye, before he lost his mind, said a nigga in a Benz is just a nigga in a Benz. Don't get it twisted. So we really, and the idea of sponsored mobility came up this week for me in tokenism, uh, dealing with this meme on Facebook. There was a a, a woman who took offense at the meme because uh, there was a young person represented in the meme. And uh, I, 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 didn't, I couldn't say it as articulately then, and I probably can't articulate it well now, but, the, but what I was thinking and couldn't get out was that A lot of that starts in childhood. It starts with, I am someone who went to predominantly white schools. And because I was smart, I always had white teachers trying to convince me that I was different from my my peers of color. And like I said, luckily, I come from a family that is very, uh, I I wouldn't say African-centered, but definitely very black-centered, right? Black is beautiful. Uh, My skin is beautiful. Um, my first doll was a soul sister doll. She had an Afro and she had these black power sayings all over her. I wish I could find a a, a doll like that now. But, um, so I was insulated and protected from embracing tokenism, but there are far too, you know, some of the people I grew up with, we grew up in a military town. Um, and so many of the black families were middle-class or better. And, uh, I look at some of my peers now and shake my head because they've really bought into this narrative that they're different, that somehow because, you know, they're comfortable financially, they don't suffer the same social ills as someone else. And that's not true. And even if it is true that you personally, um, your your own children will never turn into a Trayvon or Eric, 
Garner or, or, you know, Philando Castile, even if it's true that your children won't do that, please understand that there are children in our communities that will be that. And that that's who we're fighting for. Um, I, I just, you know, I really want some, I just want to shake some of our people. I want to shake them. We're in this together, whether you want to be or not. And we got to, and the reality is a lot of these people who are beneficiaries of sponsored mobility, you're not necessarily smarter than the brother and sister who got left behind. You're not necessarily smarter than the dude who never left the hood, the neighborhood. You have more opportunities. Perhaps because you were able to switch into standardized English a little bit easier. Perhaps because your parents were able to expose you to certain things. Perhaps because your parents got you Kaplan, so you did well on the SAT, ACT, so you got into certain programs. Um, you are a beneficiary of that sponsored mobility, but that does not mean you're better than. And unfortunately, too many of our people are buying into the I'm better than myth. And it really disturbs me. It really disturbs me. That's why I love nwdcommunity.com. I think is org. It's a website of black PhDs who come together and they're just real people, just really real to demonstrate that intelligence, articulation, scholarship doesn't have to look a certain way. You can be completely tied to your community, doing work for your community community and still be an, uh, you know, a scholar, a scholar activist. I consider myself a scholar activist, right? I wouldn't have it any other way. Now, speaking of this sponsored mobility, people who separate themselves from the masses of black people, I can't, did y'all see, I don't even know which sister it is, the Mary Mary children. You know, one of them came out this week of why she prays for Trump and why she voted for him and, you know, all this stuff because she believes uh, in his Christian beliefs. And I'm like, what's Christian about grabbing women by the pussy? What's Christian about, you know, what he's doing? or not doing uh, for Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands right now. What? How is that Christian? How is it Christian to mock uh, a reporter with physical disabilities? How is that Christian? Um, I know what they mean, though. I know what they mean. I know what she means. Um, because that she doesn't identify with or agree with certain lifestyle choices, because Trump has come out against that, then you can ignore all his other foolishness. First of all, who a person sleeps with has absolutely no bearing on me or on the institution of marriage. Your marriage was fucked up, not because there are gay men in the world, but because your husband is a cheater. And that has nothing to do with someone else's lifestyle choice. Right? Um, abortion. I'm pro-choice. Especially because a lot of these people who claim to be pro-life don't want to give resources to the mother to the ensure that the child has a full, healthy, whole life. I, I'm just all over the place, but I just had to hit on that. That foolishness, those are the kind of black people that make my teeth itch. And that's when I wish there was a real life drop squad so we could go pick up these coons and, you know, do some work with them and deliver them into the holy sanctity of being black. But, you know, whatever. I, I think, part again, all of this comes from needing to create our own narratives about what it means to be righteous, right? We've been force-fed a certain brand of Christianity for so long that we've forgotten what the roots of Christianity are. <clears throat> Excuse me, to love one another, right? To do for other people. 
let's well the beatitudes the sermon on the mount what was that about it was about doing for other people especially those who have least than we have the least of these i'm talking about the least of what we have you know what i mean <laughs> excuse me my my sinuses but i think we have to um we really have to hold people accountable we have to hold these people accountable and let them know that it's foolishness spewing from your tongue and we don't accept it right and 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 let them know how stupid they sound speak back to these people <sighs> i don't have anything else to say about that right now other than these people make my teeth itch did you guys see the 25th um anniversary show for deaf comedy jam i sat in this bed and kikikikikied and cried and laughed and had a ball all by myself. Um, but after it went off, I was kind of reflective about, you know, that when when Deaf Comedy Jam first came out, you know, that was the 90s. It was a lot of police brutality. Um, we had just come off of trying to fight for uh, anti-apartheid movements. And, you know, all this stuff was happening. And we needed the social release of black comedy. And I think we're entering into a new period where we also need a similar kind of release. But the release was strategic, right? And that's one of the things that came up in the um, the anniversary show was that, excuse me, a lot of these comics had routines that would touch on um, the social ills and then allow us to laugh. Because let me tell you something. All, uh, if you're not spending time in touch with joy, the shit that's happening right now in this world will it it will strangle you. It will suffocate you. You will be buried under its weight unless you find ways and strategies for releasing that shit sometimes. And and being funny and laughing is medicine for the soul. So, you know, again going back to this this tokenism, there was a meme going around on social media. It was this it was a young young black youth um, with straightened hair, very white aesthetic, right? A very white aesthetic. And it said, when, when racists say they have black friends, this is what they're talking about. I thought it was hilarious, but you know, there were one or two people who took offense to it because they saw themselves in it. <laughs> right? Well, just because you see yourself in it and your feelings get a little hurt. I think it's important for us again to understand that there are too many Negroes going around, uh, who are benefiting from sponsored mobility and tokenism, who willingly play the part for the uh, for the fruits of what they identify or what they identify as fruits of white supremacy, right? That's a reality. The meme obviously touches on a token of reality or it wouldn't have been as funny as it was to us. But people don't want to laugh. Like they don't want to laugh. They'd rather, you know, be angry and up in their arms. And I'm angry about a lot of stuff. And I know that we have to deal with a lot of stuff seriously and do a lot of critical engagement and thinking. But damn it, we got to have some fun too. Some of y'all woke people need to go back to sleep. I'm so tired of you being a stick in the mud and not wanting to have fun. You're going to kill yourself. Stress literally will kill you. If you don't find a thing to laugh about, I feel sorry for you. I really would hate to live a life without joy. Like, what is that? And to me, I, I've said it before. Go back to the episode on Charlottesville. I said it before. You know, we have to have joy in this. If we don't, white supremacy wins. 
we have always found joy. We are a joyful people. I think that's one of the reasons why um, some people are jealous of us because we can find joy. That's part of our magic. It's part of our strength. Oh, y'all stop being so boring. Cat almighty. Now let me switch to something that is more serious. Okay. One of the things that I think is a universal truth, it's a spiritual truth. As above, so below. Right? The, the macro often is a reflection of the micro and vice versa. So I'm going to start with the macro. I've hit on this before. Y'all, we have to have our own institutions in our community that are under our community control that mirror the values, the practices, and beliefs of our own community. We cannot give that up. Let me turn to a white man to say why. John Dewey, right? You can't major in education in the United States and not study John Dewey. John Dewey called education the necessity of life. He said, if a people don't socialize their children, that people will cease to exist. I'll say that again. If a people don't socialize their own children, that people will cease to exist. Now, prior to Brown and Brown too, black folk did have um, some control over the socialization of their children because they had community control of segregated schools. Now, post-Brown, and I won't even call it integration, we'll call it the end of du jour segregation because we know schools are as segregated now as they were prior to Brown. Um, but under the illusion of desegregation, we sent our children off to schools where they began to be socialized by the dominant culture. That's how you can have students uh, believing that somehow they're different from the rest of the community. Right. We also have black flight from our own neighborhoods. Like we talk a lot about white flight, but there are too many black and brown people who will move away from a neighborhood when it starts to get too black and brown. So the community is fractured in that way. And our ownership, our control over the various social institutions that socialize our children are being lost. Dewey says, if we don't socialize our children, we will cease to exist as a people. We are giving up our institutions too readily. Too readily are we sending our children to PWIs because we think somehow it's better. Too willingly are we allowing HBCUs to move away from the traditions that have sustained our communities. Like right now where I am, they've hired a white woman to be a consultant for Homecoming Parade. I'm at an HBCU. How can you give away your institutions so easily? Do you not understand what Dewey was saying? If we don't control these institutions, we can't control the cultural norms and mores our kids are exposed to. Ulysses S. Bias, who was the black, first black superintendent of, um, in Georgia, um, I heard him say once 
that they fought for um, integration because they believed it was in the best interest of the children. But when they woke up post-Brown, what happened in, essentially was that they had put the fox in charge of the hen house. That's how he said it. The fox is now in charge of the hen house. We have sent our children, our most vulnerable, our most powerful resource into the fox's lair. We've given it up. And not only have we given it up, we're not even standing guard to make sure that the fox does what it said it would do with our children. Right? Too many parents, too many. And I'm not a parent, but even me, I don't do enough. I don't feel like I do enough to educate parents in my community about what is happening in schools and how they like this high stakes testing foolishness that goes on. I can't tell you how white communities know that parents can opt out. You can opt your children out of those tests. We need to be spreading the word about those things. When legislation comes up, it's up to us as informed um, educators, practitioners, scholars to dissect the legislation, break it down into lame person's terms, and give it to the parents so that the parents are informed about the policies and procedures that they're voting on, right? That's how here in Georgia we were able to um, uh, basically halt the governor's plan for the opportunity school district was because some of us were learned enough to dissect the legislation despite the propaganda that the 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 doe uh actually the governor was putting out and tell parents despite what this sounds like it is bad for your children here's why it's bad for your children we need you to vote this way right educators have to be doing that we have to be advocates for our students and we have to control the institutions that socialize our children and if we can't control the public schools then what we have to do is to create alternatives to them whether it be a private school whether it be an after-school program whether it be a mentoring organization whatever but there have to be alternate socialization institutes and networks in our community that preserve the culture of the community. Otherwise, we cease to exist. Now, that's that's at the macro level. That across the board, there seems to be a giving up of our institutions, the things that have maintained us. We seem to be willing to turn away from them so that somebody can sponsor our mobility. Excuse me. That's not healthy. It's not healthy. And I don't know what we do about it. I really don't. If you got an idea, let me know. Dr. Tip at TellHimTipToldYou.com. I really want to know. Now, I wanted to get on, um, you know, so last week, I I did go on and on about the black, uh, excuse me, the Beard Games Matter group on Facebook. And there's some sexy men. There's still some sexy men on that page. But something is beginning to, like, I'm almost ready to to unfollow the the page. I like looking at the picture still, you know. That's why I haven't unfollowed it yet. But the level of quote-unquote thirst that some of my sisters are exhibiting, and some of the brothers on there, some of the ways that they're just, it's almost like they're desperate to make a connection. And they're so desperate to, to make a connection that they're giving everything. Like, 
everything. You you taking pictures with your to, with your your butt all tooted up. I'm not, you know, I told y'all before, I don't do the respectability politics. I like boudoirish photo shoots and things like that. Um, I think the female form is, is beautiful. But it just, you know, it's like a, please pick me, please pick me. Look, look, look at me, look at me. I'm going to show more than she showed. Look, look. I mean, that's what it feels like. And sisters, if we carry ourselves like that, that's how we get treated. That's how we get treated. Like I have, uh, um, I have a new friend who is a um, general contractor, and he was telling me some stories about um, when he's on the job, how women will throw thing throw themselves at him, and some of the things he's saying. I'm like, really, women say that? Like, show up to the door in a in a negligee when you know somebody's coming to put up your cabinets. Like you're really that hard up for some dick or for some attention that you, you just, and, and another brother, another one of my friends, a colleague, it, sh- it showed me um, text messages of a woman who was spreading it completely open. He had just gotten her number the day before. Like I'm sexually empowered. I, I'm not going to say, I, you know, I'm not, I, it, but I, mm, you don't even, you ain't even call me baby yet. And I'm spreading it. What? No. Just no, we don't have to do that. But as long as sisters do that, brothers will expect it. And maybe that's why people like me ain't got nobody, because I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. You know, you, you, I'm not going to do that. And again, this is coming from somebody who's sexually empowered. I don't have no rules about how long I'm going to wait to have sex. I don't have no rules about what happens in the bedroom. I don't have rules about those things. But I'm not going to just give it to anybody who look like they might want to have it. I'm worth more than that. And that's I think that's what's, what, what bothers me is that I'm worth more than that. And I want my sisters to know they are worth more than that. You don't have to be out here competing with other women that you ain't never set eyes on for a brother you ain't never seen for real. Like, what is that? You don't even know if it's a real brother behind the screen and he catfishing you. And you busting it open. What? Really? Really? Which 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 speaks back to, I remember one of my mentors, um, he was advocating for arranged marriages. And I was like, oh, no, you need to love somebody. And no, I don't think that a blah, blah, blah. No. And, and I now understand the wisdom of what he was saying. I think there have, I'm not saying in terms of arranging marriages. I, I'm still kind of against that. I see the logic in it and it may work for some people. I don't know if it will work for me, but what I'm saying though is I do think it's time for us as a community to engage in matchmaking for people in our communities. So if you know a brother who's single, successful, um, you know, and you know a sister that's single, successful, and you know that their personalities seem like they would be congruent, then perhaps you need to introduce the two. Because what we need right now, we, when we're living in the kind of environment we're living in right now, family is extremely important. And we have to be establishing stronger family ties. That means creating families. That means being committed to someone and building something. And I I was being a little heteronormative there. So let me pull back a little bit. 
and say, if you know two sisters that seem to be, a, a per, their personalities are congruent and they're both successful, introduce them to men, introduce them, whomever, you know, you know, your friends, sexual preferences, unless they are in the closet, hopefully they're not. I hope, I hope all of us can live as freely as possible. That's my, my prayer that everybody gets to live as freely as possible, but y'all let's build some family let's network some communities um you know lord take me off online dating because that's some foolishness y'all hey look, okay so let me just put out the call for myself i'm 43 i'm single i've never been married um I, I, i'm a scholar activist if you know somebody single in my age range i could be a little bit of a cougar too if i need to be not too old though because i don't want to catch the worms Y'all know the old people used to say old people give you words. But anyway, um, somebody match make me shit. Let, let's put start putting some families together. And, and women, let's start knowing our worth so that we, we don't have to just, you know, it don't have to be like a drive through. It don't have to be that. You don't have to do that. I'm all over the place today. I, uh, yeah, I don't have nothing else to say. I feel like today was such a hodgepodge of foolishness. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, somebody emailed me and let me know it's all right. Dr. Tippett, tell him Tip told you. I've enjoyed talking to you today. I'm sorry today was a bit of a rant because I was, you know, I'm on one right now. These meds for my back, you know, they really got me someplace. But anyway, I've enjoyed speaking to you. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. Tell him Tip told you. Bye.